2: Well, good afternoon, and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after four o'clock is our time. Clark Hilton, back from vacation, is engineering today's program. James Blind is producing today. We're going to talk with Carmen LeBaire. she's the office or the author rather of "Speak the Truth: How to Bring God Back into Every Conversation." We're also going to talk with Romina Bacha as you know, and we'll discuss in just a few moments uh, the uh, Republicans' effort to. Repeal, replace, alter, rename. Obamacare has uh, failed once again. And the speaker has now said, well, tax reform is uh, more important. And so they're going to be shifting to that, making some announcements tomorrow. We're going to talk with her about the challenge of tax reform, uh, which is always easier said than done so we'll get into all of that. Well, Senator Susan Collins of Maine said uh, yesterday that she will vote against the latest Obamacare repeal bill and that effectively killed the Graham-Cassidy legislation. Her announcement came minutes after the Congressional Budget Office released figures estimating that the legislation would result in millions fewer people with comprehensive health insurance that covers high-cost medical events. Now, as I mentioned yesterday, that's somewhat misleading. We don't know how many would literally be unable to purchase or afford um, medical insurance. What we do know is is when the mandate goes, there are lots of people who decide they're not going to get it. And that is uh, one element that makes it possible, their funding makes it possible to do other things. So that said, in a statement, Collins referred to the Graham-Cassidy bill as deeply flawed and that health care reform cannot be done properly in a compressed time frame. Sweeping reforms to our health care system and the Medicaid can't be done well in a compressed time frame, especially when the actual bill is a moving target, she said. Well, today we find out that there is now a fourth version of the Graham-Cassidy proposal, which is as deeply flawed as the previous iterations. The fact that a new version of this bill was released the very um, the very week we are supposed to vote compounds the problem, the senator's statement went on to say. Well, Collins is the fourth GOP senator that came out against the legislation, joining Senators John McCain, Rand Paul and Ted Cruz all of whom say they oppose it. However, Cruz's aide said that the Texas senator is seeking changes to the bill so he can uh, vote in favor of it. Votes from two other Republican senators, Mike Lee of Utah, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, are still up in the air well all democrats and independents will vote no so opposition uh by just 3 republicans would kill the bill and they're trying to do it through the process of reconciliation that requires a much lower threshold than if they uh use the uh, the more conventional approach that would require uh, at least 60, in favor of the bill. Uh, Senator Collins laid out her three biggest concerns about the bill. She noted cuts to Medicaid, weakened uh, protections for those with pre-existing conditions, and pointed out that physicians, patient advocates, insurers, and hospitals agree that both versions of this legislation would lead to higher premiums and reduced coverage for tens of millions of Americans. Well, the CBO's analysis on the earlier version of the bill, incomplete though it is, is due to... Uh, Uh, time constraints, confirms that uh, the bill will have a substantially negative impact on a number of people covered by insurance, her statement went on to say. Well, the bill that was authored by Senators Lindsey Graham and Bill Cassidy, both Republicans, South Carolina, Louisiana, respectively, was edited during the weekend in what appeared to be a last-minute effort to provide some additional funding to the states represented by senators that expressed concerns regarding the legislation. Graham said information will be released uh, regarding a Senate vote on the bill. Uh, That was made earlier today, and it does not look likely that it will be called up unless there are such revisions that a couple of senators uh, jump back on. Again, the deadline for the reconciliation process is September 30th, which is Saturday of this week. Um, As I mentioned, the announcement made uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell told reporters we plan to move forward with our next priority and focus on tax. So. Repealing and replacing Obamacare, a promise made and oft referred to not only during the campaign of 2016, but for seven years prior, is now a pretty much um, a faint promise, a memory with uh, very little substance behind it. Now, this doesn't mean they can't revisit it at some point, but the process of reconciliation with a lower threshold, given the majority of Republicans in both the House, the Senate, and holding the White House, Should have made it uh, very easy to pass something, but that was not to be the case. Well, House Speaker Paul Ryan told a news conference on Tuesday that Republican leaders in the House, Senate and White House have come together on a concrete framework for historic tax reform. Forgive me if I'm just a little skeptical. The rollouts begin tomorrow, he said, when Republican leaders brief their caucus about the plan. He also admitted to frustration with the Senate, which has been unable to muster 50 Republican votes to pass a health care bill. But he indicated that a tax reform bill is even more important than that. Well, is it more important? Uh, I think we probably agree. But is it more possible? The first question asked Ryan involved the Trump fueled controversy over the NFL players who refused to stand for the national anthem. Sadly, that has been something of a distraction. Ryan said people are clearly within their rights to express themselves how they see fit. My own view, though, uh, is we shouldn't do it on the anthem. Uh, So immediately shifted from what is more important than health care reform, tax reform to what's happening in the NFL. It's a bit sad to say. Well, we're going to talk later in the program with Romina Baccia. She's a leading fiscal and economic expert. We'll talk about uh, the fact that tax reform is easier said than done. We've heard talk of tax reform for many, many years. Whether or not it's actually accomplished this time around remains to be seen. The GOP, as we know, is well positioned to pass meaningful tax reform, but that doesn't make passage any easier to achieve. So we'll certainly follow that uh, Uh, as it moves forward, presuming that it does. Senator Bob Corker announced today that he will not seek re-election. He's the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He announced that uh, he will leave the Senate when his term expires and will not seek re-election. After much thought, consideration, and family discussion over the past year, Elizabeth and I, referring to his wife, decided that uh, I will leave the United States Senate when my term expires at the end of 2018. So it's going to be around for a while. Uh, uh, Anyway, we'll... uh, his name is, I think, the third Republican that says uh, that said uh, they will not be returning uh, once their term expires, which has the capacity to change the makeup um, of the, uh, the U.S. Senate, something the Democrats covet. Well, President Donald Trump plans to uh, set the cap for refugee admissions for the coming fiscal year at forty five thousand. That's the lowest in decades, according to people. Uh, familiar with the ongoing discussions, the numbers won't be officially settled until after senior administration officials consult with members of Congress, as required by law, and that's going to be tomorrow. A decision is due by Saturday before the next fiscal year. Well, the State Department had initially pushed for a cap of at least fifty thousand, but later revised its recommendation to the president to forty-five. The Department of Homeland Security recommended a figure closer to forty thousand. This falls somewhere in the middle. Uh, President Trump has already lowered the cap once a year ago. former President Obama said the u s would accept as many as one hundred and ten thousand refugees in two thousand and seventeen responding to pressure from a, uh, from a mounting Syrian refugee crisis after taking office. Mr Trump he lowered the two thousand and seventeen cap to fifty thousand and sought to suspend refugee admissions altogether for 120 days in order to review vetting procedures. Well, since 1980, the president has had sole authority to set annual refugee admission caps, and until this year, the cap had never been set below 67,000. In the early 1990s, it topped 110,000 every year, but more recently, the cap hovered Uh, Between 70 and 80,000. Of course, the 90s were before September 11th, 2011. A White House spokesperson declined to comment on this year's deliberations. But as we said, the announcement and decision has to be made by the end of this week, uh, the beginning of the fiscal year. And on Wednesday, apparently there's going to be some sort of um, meeting and presumably decision finalized 16 minutes after four o'clock is the time you're listening to the Georgine Rice show. Carmen Leberge is our guest coming up uh, later this hour. Speak the truth. Yeah, we want to do that, but we have to speak up in order to be heard. Speaking the truth, how to bring God back into every conversation is the subject of her book. And again, she'll join us later.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: 21 minutes after four o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice show. Well, Homeland Security said it has begun construction today on the prototypes for President Trump's new border wall. And a short notice, U.S. Customs and Border Protection said the building began in San Diego on eight prototypes, which had been awarded over the summer. Well, four of the prototypes are concrete walls, four are non-concrete designs. We're committed to securing our border, and that includes constructing border walls. That's a quote from Ronald Vitellio, Acting Deputy Commissioner of the CBP. Well, the prototypes are designed to test out new approaches, materials, strategies, and technology as Homeland Security pushes forward with the president's goal of a border wall. The designs are between 18 and 30 feet, I assume in height, They'll be evaluated on how well they deter climbers, how well they withstand uh, breach attempts, and what sorts of awareness they allow agents who patrol the border. The prototypes are expected to be finished within 30 days. Moving forward with the prototypes enables us to continue to incorporate all the tools necessary to secure our border, Mr. Vitellio said. Agents and Mr. Trump say visibility through the wall is critical for knowing what's going on in Mexico, helping agents avoid ambushers or other potential dangers, as well spot migrants or smugglers preparing to try to cross. The concrete designs are less useful right along the border, officials say, and will likely be used as secondary fencing uh, setbacks, uh, setback a ways. So there's the fence and then there's this concrete design. About 354 miles of the 19,052-mile border are currently protected by some form of wall. Another 300 miles have vehicle barriers, which allow easy penetration by pedestrians or animals, but they're designed to stop trucks and cars from barreling over the border. The president during the campaign said he wanted to see a border wall, uh, but more recently has said between 700 to 900 miles needs a barrier. It's unclear whether that's a total number or... In addition to the current fencing, his 2017 budget called for money for replacing some outdated parts of the current wall, while his 2018 plan... It asked for $1.6 billion to erect 32 miles of new fencing in Texas, another 28 miles of new levee wall also in Texas, and 14 miles of replacement fencing in San Diego. The House approved the money, but the Senate has uh, yet to take up the bill. The Democrats have announced that they will try to derail any legislation that includes border wall money. There is enough money in the current 2017 budget to pay for the prototypes. Interestingly, they would already passed um, legislation for a wall to cover the southern border but never funded it, and that's the mechanism currently being used to prevent the president's uh, plan from moving forward. Meanwhile, President Trump announced that he's going to visit hurricane-ravaged Puerto Rico on Tuesday, well, Wednesday, I believe, as the island copes with shortages of food, drinking water, and electricity. We have to help them. The island is devastated, he said. Today, the administration has been facing criticism for its response to the damage on the island that is home to more than 3 million U.S. citizens. The president said today is the earliest he can visit without, rather, Tuesday of next week is the Earliest he can visit without disrupting recovery operations, he voiced confidence that Puerto Rico will recover. These are great people. They're wonderful people. They'll be back, he said. Earlier in the day, he tweeted that his administration is working hard to respond to the island's needs, vowing much food and water Uh, There and on the way. He also tweeted about the devastation overnight while noting the island suffers from broken infrastructure and massive debt, which has made it much more difficult for them to recover. Its old electrical grid, which was in terrible shape, was devastated. Much of the island is destroyed. Billions of dollars owed to Wall Street and the banks, which sadly must uh, be dealt with. Food, water, medical are top priorities and um, and doing well. Hashtag FEMA. He wrote so he'll be visiting next week. Meanwhile, there was a press conference uh, in uh, Puerto Rico today involving FEMA outlining what measures have already been taken, what's on the way and what can be expected in the short term. Now, this is not like Texas. It's not like Florida. It's obviously an island and getting supplies to them as quickly as we've seen in other cases is much more difficult. They also don't have the uh, financial and other infrastructure for that to happen. You have an island that is essentially, with the exception of those with uh, generators, without power. The grid has been utterly destroyed. And whether or not it was antiquated, it at least provided the power needed for people to function. That is no longer the case and will most likely have to be thoroughly replaced. So this is going to be a very long-term and difficult not to mention challenging recovery for Puerto Rico. You might remember just a couple of months ago, there was a referendum there and they elected to seek uh, statehood. Uh, Part of the problem is they're in such financial hardship that that seemed like something of a solution. They would then be eligible for some things that a territory is not. It's not likely that's going to be approved anytime soon, but it is a desperate situation uh, that is now getting uh, at least the, the cameras are now giving attention to it. Meanwhile, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson told CBS's Face the Nation that the U.S. is thinking about closing its embassy in Havana, Cuba, in response to mysterious acoustic attacks on U.S. personnel that have injured at least 21 Americans. Well, some are suggesting that keeping the embassy in Havana open but expelled from uh, the U.S. 19 Cubans working at its embassy in Washington might be a better choice since the U.S. already expelled two Cuban diplomats in August in response to the attacks. The new round of expulsions would bring the number of Castro personnel asked to leave to the same number of U.S. personnel that have been medically confirmed to have suffered injuries, in some cases long term. The U.S. can tell Cuba that things will return to normal when Raul Castro explains to the State Department how the embassy employees were harmed. As of now, all we know is that the State Department believes some sort of sonic harassment has left them with a variety of physical symptoms. That's an understatement. The American Foreign Service Association, a union for U.S. diplomats, said earlier this month that it has spoken with 10 of the affected and that diagnoses include mild traumatic brain injury, permanent hearing loss with such additional symptoms as loss of balance, severe headaches, cognitive disruption, and brain swelling. Mr. Castro says he is shocked to hear this news and claims he has no idea how it could have happened. That would be easier to believe if Cuba were not a police state with a long record of harassing U.S. government employees on the island. Well, according to retired Ambassador James Kaysen, who ran the U.S. interest section in Havana from 2002 to 2005, leaving feces on a dining room table or a car door handle and poisoning pets are a few ways Castro's boys have shown hospitality toward Americans over the years. Embassy personnel engaged in human rights issues and with uh, uh, dissidents uh, were among the most likely targets because the regime wanted to send a message, Mr. Carson said. Well, the sonic attacks are different because the Americans didn't know they were being harmed until after the fact. One theory is that one of Cuba's allies, like North Korea or Iran, decided to test a new assault device from its embassy on the island. Another theory is that a rogue wing of the regime wanted to undermine the U.S. uh, reproachment, but a regime that specializes in spying on its own people isn 't often surprised by local developments, as Mr. Carson puts it. Nothing happens in Cuba without the government knowing about it Well, on the odd chance that the attacks aren 't regime approved a one party A state that learned from the Soviet certainly has the power to investigate. Yet these incidents between rather which began last November, the U.S. first complained in February and as recently as August, they continued. Notwithstanding Mr. Castro's bafflement, his government has done nothing about the attacks, perhaps he figured he could simply get away with it after he won normal relations with the United States without making uh, any concessions. Mr. Tillerson said it's a very serious issue with respect to the harm that certain individuals have suffered. Expelling Cuban uh, embassy personnel will anger Cuba because it will weaken its espionage ability here. But the U.S. has a responsibility to protect its diplomats and a failure to respond will encourage other regimes to do the same. So they're uh, now contemplating how to respond to the harm done to 21 Americans who were serving in uh, in Cuba. We're going to take a quick break. When we return, we're going to talk with the author of Speak the Truth. Okay, I think we can do that. How to bring God back into everyday conversation. Well, that might be a little more challenging. First of all, it requires a little, of, uh, I don't know, courage. And then we need to know what to say and how to say it. Well, Carmen LeBerge is the author. She's going to join us to talk about just that. 30 minutes after four, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey,
2: 36 minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Now, let me ask you a question. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but how many believers in America, yourself included, are afraid to speak up? to speak about God and faith and family? Well, the answer, sadly, is too many Christians. We're sidelined because of fear. We're afraid we're going to be ridiculed or maybe even punished. But it is every Christian's responsibility. In fact, it's a privilege to have the mind of Christ and to speak the truth in every cultural conversation. Well, in her brand new book, Speak the Truth: How to Bring God Back into Every Conversation. My next guest, Carmen Leberge, she's the president of Presbyterian Lay Committee and radio host of the Reconnect with Carmen LeBerge. She challenges the church to bring God's viewpoint into the difficult conversations that we have today. She also equips her leader, her readers, rather, with the arguments and strategies to engage and combat the aggressive arrogance of those who seek to silence viewpoints uh, that differ from their own. Speak the truth will help silent uh, Christians come out of hiding as uh, we are called to do uh, by virtue of the great commission. So I'm wondering, are you willing to do just that? Well, again, my guest, Carmen LeBerge, is a writer. She's a speaker. She's the host of the reconnect with Carmen LaBerge. She is a frequent guest on my radio, my faith radio network. She has written for Christianity today, Christian post and Faithwire. Since 2008, she served as the president of the Presbyterian Lay Committee, a ministry that's been working to equip Christians for faithful witness. Her passion is helping people reconnect the eternal with the everyday by equipping believers to engage the culture in ways that honor Jesus. And isn't that what we really want to do? She is the founding chairman of Common Ground Christian Network and a member of the board of directors of the National Association of Evangelicals. She also participates uh, actively on the Mission America Coalition, the National Religious Broadcasters and the Christian Leadership Alliance. This is somebody who speaks up and is going to help us do the same. Hey, thank you so much for joining us today. It's, a, it's an honor to have you with us, Carmen. Oh,
3: Georgine, it's an honor to be with you. Thank you so much.
2: Well, let's, let's begin by talking a little bit about the fact that many of us have been intimidated into silence. We want to be effective communicators of the gospel in a culture that desperately needs it, but we uh, are, are reluctant because of the pressures brought to bear Paint a picture of the challenge that we face.
3: Well, a lot of Americans uh, who are Christians are uncomfortable addressing the cultural issues of the day because we either, you know, we're frankly afraid of being called names. Um, and that's a you know that's a great way to silence somebody to to say something that is actually completely unrelated to the subject matter, but just belittles them personally. Um, and so we have to definitely gear up for that. We have to we have to be prepared um, for uh, for that kind of response. But I think um, Georgine, the main reason most people don't speak up is because they simply feel ill-equipped. They simply feel like they don't they don't quite know what to say, and they certainly don't feel like they know how to say it. Um, because we want to honor Jesus in the way that we speak the truth, and that's often, um, I think, what is so difficult for people. We know what the truth is on a particular subject. It's clear, because we're students of Scripture, and we're empowered by the Holy Spirit, so we know the mind of Christ on the matters of the day. We simply aren't articulating it. And the reason, I think, uh, at least in in my encounters with other people and my observations and my own experience, it's simply because we, we have not been given the tools and the methods Um, that enable us to enter into those conversations in ways that are non-defensive and Mm -hmm. do not provoke defensiveness in the other person. So that's what the book's designed to do.
2: Absolutely. I want to get into that in just a moment. But I also want to address those who are reluctant to share their faith because they're not convinced that that's something that we are called to do. Um, there are those who believe that expressing one's faith is, crosses a line that should not be crossed, that faith is something that is held privately. What do you say to those who don't feel that the Great Commission really applies to them as an individual?
3: Well, you know, for those, um, those sort of, uh, I guess, reluctant evangelists out there, um, let me let me in part let you off the hook by saying that bringing God back into every conversation is your role and responsibility as an ambassador of Jesus Christ in the world today. You are a representative of the gospel. You are a minister of reconciliation. You may not feel like an evangelist, and you may not feel like an evangelist because that's become a bit of a dirty word in our culture. So let me let people off the hook a little bit, Georgine, and say, what if um, what if you simply challenged yourself? to find the angle in an everyday conversation, to find the angle to get God or God's eternal perspective into a conversation where currently God's being left out. So I'm not saying every conversation goes all the way to, you know, the center's prayer. They just don't. That's just not the reality of 99% of our conversations. But in the conversation, can I be an authentic representative of Jesus Christ? Can I, um, Can I represent the truth, the eternal truth, of who God is and what His kingdom perspective is on whatever the issue is. Can I do that, and can I do it in a way that honors Jesus? Because over the course of time, my engagement with another person in that kind of relational, I'll call it relational or conversational apologetics I won't even call it evangelism. That makes us more comfortable. Mm -hmm. Um, But over the course of time, that is going to win me the right to be the person they turn to when the crisis hits. Because, you know, crisis is coming to everybody. It comes in different forms and different ways. And if I am the person who has tilled the soil in that relationship over time, they know I'm a believer. Whether or not they have ever agreed with me about anything, they know I'm a believer. And in a time of crisis... That's the person to whom they're going to turn.
2: What we're talking about is conversational apologetics. At the end of each of the chapters in your book, Speak the Truth, you offer questions for personal reflection and group discussion to help us not just to see this as an academic pursuit, but to really go deeper, to ask the kinds of questions of our own heart that will help us to recognize those areas that that maybe prevent us from speaking the truth in love uh, and and find the courage uh, to, to step out in ways that we are called.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um I think that uh, the book is designed to be a conversation, right? It's designed to provoke conversation, and it's designed to get people off the sidelines and into conversations. Um, you know, at least with God, but preferably with other people. But it does certainly start with um, you know each individual reader and disciple having having um, the conversation, sort of you know with themselves and with the Lord. Um, you know, where are the where are the conversations that I'm just really not willing to enter in on your behalf, Lord? Where you know who are the people who you know? Frankly, I don't care enough about where they spend eternity to even bother mm. making myself uncomfortable in a conversation. Like at some point, we have to get to that place yeah. where we recognize that my unwillingness to love someone enough for me to be uncomfortable um, means I don't really care where they're spending eternity. Um, I I'll just tell you that this, this is in terms of like stuff going on in the culture right now. Um, you know, as a as a white evangelical Christian. I have had to learn how to very non-defensively listen to uh, my black brothers and sisters talk about the realities of, of a culture that I just know from a different angle than they're experiencing it. So if I can't have that non-defensive conversation with, you know, with a brother or sister in Christ who happens to be a different skin pigment than I am, um, then if I'm not willing to experience the discomfort that comes by acknowledging real injustice. and We're not going to make progress as the people of God in this culture. And so some of this is learning how to listen mm. non-defensively as a believer, and some of this is learning how to speak the truth on the issues of the day in ways that honor Jesus.
2: Yeah, and that's so important that we learn to listen as much as we... Uh, we are willing uh, to speak. Now, we're going to take a break here in just a moment. We're talking about the book, Speak the Truth, How to Bring God Back into Every Conversation. Now, does it always have to be sort of an awkward encounter, or is there a point at which uh, speaking uh, about our faith in a a loving, uh, truthful way becomes so comfortable for us that we're able to talk about it just like we would talk about our love for our pets or what we did on vacation?
3: Oh, yeah, and the entry point into a conversation, I mean, in terms of bringing God into a conversation, for me, it's literally the headlines of the day. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to use whatever people are already talking about. So people are going to talk about taking a knee. They're going to talk about kneeling. I'm going to talk about what it means one day that everybody, um, no matter whether or not they're on heaven and earth or under the earth, they're going to take a knee, and it's going to be to a guy named Jesus. So let's have that conversation. But
2: yeah, so there you go.
3: That's how you do it. That's how easy it is.
2: Amen. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation. Again, my guest is Carmen Leberge. she is the author of Speak the Truth, How to Bring God Back into Every Conversation. And if you've longed for the freedom to just speak openly about your faith in a way that uh, expresses the love of Jesus in a casual conversation or perhaps in a less casual conversation. This is a great book to help uh, walk you through that, to equip you and to prepare you for some of the challenges you may face. Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We're back 49 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with the president of the Presbyterian Lay Committee and host of the Reconnect with Carmen radio show. Carmen LaBerge is the author of Speak the Truth. She aims to get Christians off the sidelines and back in the conversation. The Christian viewpoint is desperately needed in our cultural conversations, uh, but many of us have effectively been muted because we're not equipped to engage and combat the aggressive arrogance of those who seek to silence viewpoints that from their own. Now, our listeners today are many things. We are talking to mothers and fathers, we're talking to people who are employed, others who are retired. But there's one thing that all of us, if we are followers of Christ, share in common. We are described in Scripture as ambassadors. That is, as you write in your book, speak the truth, that is our identity. Talk a little bit about what it means to be an ambassador.
3: Well, my encouragement to everyone who's listening is to stand in front of the mirror and actually have a conversation with yourself about the reality that you are an ambassador of the kingdom of heaven, uh, and that God has deployed you as, as an ambassador to a foreign field. And that, that foreign country is actually the United States of America for most of us. For most of us, this is, um, this is the place to which God has sent us as his as his ambassador. So, what does it mean for me to bear the kingdom perspective into the world? What does it mean for me to recognize that the the culture in which I live is, first of all, not my eternal home, um, and that it is a culture that um, that God has intentionally sent me into to um, to demonstrate to other people, to show other people. What it what it looks like um, to to have a relationship with the living God to actually help people taste and see that the Lord is good. So instead of engaging culture as if I'm supposed to be at war with it, because frankly, Georgine, I don't know if your listeners or you have tried that, but that is exhausting <laughs> yes. and um, and seemingly futile at this point. So I don't want to be at war with the culture. I want to be cultivating within the culture um, seeds and um and then young even little fresh roots that one day are going to grow up and produce really positive fruit in the American culture. I may not see that. That's okay. As the ambassador who's here right now, I'm going to do everything I can to till the soil of this culture for the harvest of righteousness that God intends to bring one day. Um, and so as an ambassador, part of it is seeing myself in the right way, that I recognize that as um, as a representative of the kingdom of heaven, I am not supposed to just be spouting off my own opinions people don't need a piece of my mind. What people need is the peace of the mind of Christ. So how do I give them that? Mm
2: -hmm, mm -hmm. One of your chapters is titled, Truth Has Consequences and So Do Lies. What happens when the church, when Christ's ambassadors, decline the opportunities he provides for us to speak the truth in love and to a culture that desperately needs to hear it?
3: Yeah, somebody's talking to our kids, and if it's not us, Um, then whatever viewpoint it is that is coming through all of the avenues of influence that are reaching the next generation, they're going to own the next generation in terms of the ideas in their heads. You and I know that ideas have consequences. Um, You know, sins don't start with actions. They start with thoughts. You know, sins of thought, word, and deed. Um, The same is true for, you know, for positive good behavior, right? The things that we do that are edifying are not only to people but glorifying to God. It starts in our thought life. So um so ideas have consequences, good ideas have good consequences, bad ideas have bad consequences. And so it is our responsibility, it is incumbent upon us as the followers of Jesus Christ present in the world today, um, to be the people who are articulating the the good ideas. Now how do I know what's good? Well, God is what is good, beautiful and true. Those are the you know transcendental virtues. And so if it's if it's godly, it's good. If it's God honoring, it's good. If it's god glorifying it's good um and so when we talk about those um those kind of of values we're not saying hey it's all about american values let's be sure we share american values i want christians in the culture to be distinctively christian let's get away from maybe you know what is american because that is so confusing right now to so many people Mm -hmm. so let's talk as christians about what is distinctively christian so let's let's do the identity politics conversation on what is distinctively Christian. We're going to have a conversation about identity and it's going to be a distinctively Christian conversation. Then Georgine, this is not a trick question. Whose identity am I most concerned with as a Christian? Mm, Christ. Absolutely. All right. So let's get those identity conversations somehow to be Christ conversations, right? So I am not first any of the things that culture wants to say um, are in, are like the important, the highlighted thing, the you-got-to-fight-for thing. Um, I'm not first any of those things. I'm first a Christian, right? I'm first in Christ. Um, it, 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 but people have to get to that place. And so if Christians are not at the place where we can honestly say, hey, it's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me, and he can do whatever he wants and say whatever he wants with this life, um, if we're not at that place yet, then we still have work to do in terms of our own discipleship Um, as we then turn to the world to represent Him or represent Him to others. Mm.
2: Now, the book we're talking about is Speak the Truth, How to Bring God Back into Every Conversation. You point out in one of your chapters, I know something's wrong, but what's right? Focusing on what's right, as you described a few moments ago, I think there's a common agreement in the culture among rank-and-file people that something's wrong, and when we come into that conversation to help shine light on what's right, we have the, the opportunity to influence in ways that, that perhaps we haven't imagined
3: possible. That is absolutely right. People, um, people are actually longing for light and for truth. They don't necessarily know it, um, but that's really what people are longing for, and so um, if we are if we are willing to take the time to listen to other people, um, their pain and their and their anguish and the reality that something is wrong is never more than just beneath the surface of any conversation. And so even if somebody is. Um, reacting to and, and mouthing off about something in the culture, the pain and, and the anguish is right below the surface of that conversation and it's something personal. Um, because you and I both know that's, that's the root of why people are acting the way they're acting, because of the deep reality in their own life of a broken relationship with God. Now, you'll dive right in, right? Um, and so that's, that's what that particular chapter is about. How do I walk from that point where some other person acknowledging that there's something wrong Um, You know, it can start as simply as, you know, somebody gives a throw-off comment like, what's wrong with us in in reaction to something? Or, I can't believe this is going on. Um, Can you believe this is happening? Well, yeah, as Christians, actually, we can believe it's happening. We Mm -hmm. we actually recognize that there's a sinfulness and a brokenness, not just in people, but in the world, Um, that with the fall of humanity, all creation fell and now groans with eager longing for our redemption. So this isn't just about, you know, a me and Jesus um, personal restoration, although that's important. This is also about the responsibility that we have as agents of grace to declare the redemptive reality of all of history.
2: Our time is almost up, but I wanted to just highlight for a moment the necessity of restoring the Word of God to its rightful place. If we're going to be effective communicators of the gospel in uh, normal conversation, speaking the truth in love, we must be men and women of the Word.
3: Absolutely. You know, we're all—everybody's full of something. I mean, we talk about that in our culture. Like, people are, people are full of something, right, Georgie? Um, as, a, as a believer, I need to be full. I need to be full of the Word of God, because when the pressure comes, when I get squeezed, what do I want to have come out of me? I want to have the Word of God come out of me. And so that's really the motivation um, for Christians who want to be living demonstrations of the gospel in the world. We have to be so full, not only of the Spirit of the living God, but so full of His Word that we immediately will know what the mind of Christ is on the matters of the day, because the Word has its rightful place in our heart and life.
2: Again, the title of the book, Speak the Truth, How to Bring God Back into Every Conversation. And don't we desperately need to be men and women who recognize that we are ambassadors of Christ and to seize the opportunities to walk through the doors that God gives us to serve as his representative. Thank you, Carmen, so much for writing the book and for taking the time to talk with us here today.
3: Thank you, Georgine, and
2: thank you, Portland. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us. Again, the book is Speak the Truth How to Bring God Back into Every Conversation. It's published by Regnery Faith and is currently available. We've got news and traffic here at the top of the hour. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Also, I should mention in the next hour, we'll talk with Romina Baccia. Uh, we'll talk about uh, tax reform. That's where the Republicans are shifting their focus. But it's easier said than done. We've seen it said many times, but done, eh, not so much. That and more when we return.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show, six minutes after five o'clock. Later this hour, we'll talk with Romina Baccia. She's a leading fiscal and economic expert. She focuses on government spending and national debt. We'll talk about tax reform. It may be easier said than done. The GOP is so well positioned to pass meaningful tax reform, but that doesn't mean that passage is going to be an easy achievement. Um, Some of the narratives are misdiagnosing the problem. So the question is, how hard uh, could this be and what are some of the barriers Uh, to um, tax reform. We'll talk with her about that later this hour. Well, just in time to celebrate its first anniversary, that's one full year, the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture has included a display featuring Justice Clarence Thomas one of the um, Supreme Court's conservative stalwarts. Now, he is one of only two African-Americans ever to sit on the U.S. Supreme Court. But because he is a conservative, he's not considered black enough. And there was quite a controversy on whether why he was not included. Colin Kaepernick, by the way, is there. Uh, Anyway, Justice Thomas appears in an exhibit now that was installed shortly before the one-year anniversary on Sunday, a Smithsonian spokeswoman said. The display honors both of the black justices who ascended to the pinnacle of the legal profession. The other is Thurgood Marshall. Justice Thomas's apparent omission irked conservative observers of both black and white and everything in between, who suspected an ideological bias among Smithsonian officials and called for the influential jurists' inclusion in the museum. Uh, the Distinguished Professor of Jurisprudence at the Dale E. Fowler School of Law in Chapman University, Ronald Rotunda, said Justice Thomas deserves to be recognized for his contributions to constitutional jurisprudence, his record of public service, and his inspirational life story. Like Thurgood Marshall, he went on to see, he's been a very influential justice, and like Thurgood Marshall, he has risen from humble beginnings. Mr. Rotunda said his father left him, his grandparents raised him, in 1968 assassination of Dr. Martin Luther. King turned him to the law. He left a successful corporate law practice and turned to public service. That path led him to the U.S. Supreme Court. Mr. Rotunda said it's uh, surprising that it has taken so long for the museum to acknowledge such a seminal figure on the U.S. Supreme Court. A chief spokesperson for the Smithsonian Institute said the exhibit includes a picture of Justice Thomas, the cover of Jet Magazine on which he appeared in 1991, and the inscription, Clarence Thomas from Seminary School to a Supreme Court. She said the museum is evolving and other things will change over time. The Smithsonian faced an intense backlash last year over Justice Thomas's absence from the museum. And although they failed to make mention of the second black man to sit on the U.S. Supreme Court, it found considerable space to recognize the Black Panthers, hip-hop, and Black Lives Matter movement, the names of many members you wouldn't recognize, even a pen reading, I believe Anita Hill, the woman who accused Justice Thomas of sexual harassment during his 1991 Senate confirmation hearing was included. Congressional Republicans uh, introduced resolu- resolutions rather in December. They asked the museum to recognize the historical importance of Justice Thomas. Senator Ted Cruz, Texas Republican, penned a letter to the Smithsonian saying he was deeply disturbed by the snub. The controversy boiled over again last month when the museum curator said gear worn by Colin Kaepernick, the former NFL quarterback who refused to stand for the national anthem, you know, one of those highly paid and pampered Professional athletes uh, would be put on display. The exclusion of Justice Thomas, who was a blemish uh, on an otherwise beloved museum. Well, the Smithsonian's 19th and most popular institution, the National Museum of African-American History and Culture, I aspire to visit and uh, very likely will have the opportunity next, Jan- uh, next July. rather. Uh, far exceeded attendance expectations. It attracted nearly 3 million people in its first year. We expected 4,000 people a day. Founding director Lonnie Bunch told the Associated Press, we got 8,000 people a day, so I can't complain about a thing. Well, there are some who are complaining about who's there and who's not. To celebrate the um, one-year anniversary, the museum extended its hours last weekend so more people could... Uh, get inside to see exhibits designed to take visitors through black American history from slavery on the lower level to a reproduction of Oprah Winfrey's television set upstairs and artifacts from Barack Obama's first presidential campaign. Grounds uh, for the five hundred and forty million dollar museum was broken in 2012 on a five acre track near the Washington Monument. Construction was completed last year. Millions of dollars contributed Uh, Rather, millions of donors contributed some $315 million in private funds ahead of that opening. Well, the nation's first black president, Mr. Obama, opened the museum to a standing room only crowd in September of last year with the ringing of a church bell. People uh, of all colors and creeds have flocked to the museum to see exhibits, including the glass topped casket used to bury lynching victim Emmett Till, a fedora owned by late pop superstar Michael Jackson, a slave cabin from Uh, Adisto Island, South Carolina. Just as important as the exhibits are the emotions and memories that the museum evokes, Mr. Bunch says. Wandering through the museum, he can often see grandmothers explaining the Jim Crow South to their children or grandchildren and fathers and sons talking about the joys and horrors of growing up in a segregated U.S. Because you have these collections, it allows people to open up to share stories to find memories. I've heard many times people say, Mr. Bunch went on to say, I forgot, but once I was a, once I saw a segregated door or once I saw a washboard, It brought back those memories. So what we wanted uh, has happened. This museum has humanized history. And I know much of my family history is reflected there from slave ships uh, right up to the present. Well, House Republicans uh, formally renewed their call for a second special counsel to probe the 2016 controversies involving Hillary Clinton and the Obama administration today, following allegations that former FBI Director James Comey drafted an exoneration statement for Clinton weeks before interviewing her. And those uh, interviews were not under oath when Republicans on the House Judiciary Committee, who first called for a second special counsel 's appointment in July, cited several factors in a letter today to the Attorney General Jeff Sessions and his deputy Rod Rosenstein. In this case, it appears that Director Comey and other senior Justice department and government officials may have prejudged the matter before um, all the facts were known, thereby ensuring former Secretary Clinton would not be charged for her criminal activity, they wrote. Foremost was the allegation, which emerged in transcripts of FBI staffer interviews conducted by the Office of Special Counsel, that the former FBI boss drafted a statement clearing Clinton in her personal email case weeks before interviewing her and making his public recommendation against criminal charges. The claim has prompted some lawmakers to call for Comey to return to Capitol Hill to resolve discrepancies in his past statements. And so it goes on, and I assume will go on and on. The letter specifically cited an exchange that Representative John Ratcliffe out of Texas had at a hearing last year with Comey. At the time, he asked Comey whether he made the decision not to recommend criminal charges against Clinton before or after she was interviewed by the FBI in early July. After, Comey said... In the letter today, the the Judiciary Committee Chairman Bob Goodlatte. Uh, and other GOP lawmakers said the latest Comey allegations suggest the decision had already been made prior to the interview of Clinton and other key witnesses. The letter also complained that top Clinton associates received immunity for uh, for cooperation while also being allowed to attend the FBI Clinton the FBI's Clinton interview. That, coupled with the revelation that the director had already drafted an exoneration statement, strongly suggests the interview was a mere formality and that the director had already decided the case would be closed. They wrote. Further, they complained that Comey didn't record interviews with Clinton and other close associates, despite Justice Department policy encouraging that practice. Although it apparently does not require it, it does encourage it. This is truly inexplicable, they went on to say, given that the case was of keen national interest and importance. They added, it only reinforces the sense that our nation's top law enforcement officials conspired to sweep the Clinton matter under the rug, and that there is truly one system for the powerful and politically well-connected and another for everyone else. Again, they're asking for um, these allegations to be revisited, uh, House Republicans, in a letter formally making that request today. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll tell you a little bit about uh, what's happening with some college basketball coaches. Uh, apparently, the as they're referring to it, the dark underbelly of college basketball Uh, is being exposed uh, after 10 people, including coaches and an Adidas exec, are busted in a massive bribery and corruption investigation. More on that when we return.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We're back 20 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Next segment, we'll talk with Romina Baccia. We're going to talk about tax reform. Easier said than done, but is it likely to get done? That's coming up in our next segment. Well, the FBI and Justice Department have launched a massive crackdown on what they've described as the dark underbelly of college basketball after 10 people, including four assistant coaches, were arrested as part of a widespread uh, investigation into systematic bribery and corruption involving several schools. According to acting U.S. attorney in Manhattan, Jim Kuhn, the investigation was launched in 2015. It focuses on the criminal influence of money on coaches and student athletes who participate in intercollegiate. Basketball governed by the NC2AA or NC. Two A. You get the idea. Well no schools have been charged with any wrongdoing, but the University of Louisville announced it received notice that it is included in a federal investigation involving criminal activity related to men's basketball recruiting. Specifically, two schemes were investigated, one in which recruits and their families were paid to go to particular universities, and another in which player advisors were paid to persuade those players to sign with certain managers, agents, and financial advisors. Oklahoma State's Lamont Evans, Emmanuel Richardson of Arizona, Tony Bland of USC, Auburn University's Chuck Person, a former NBA player and 1987 Rookie of the Year, are the four coaches charged in the corruption scheme, according to court documents. Uh, Person has been suspended by Auburn, the school announced today. Well, Kuhn went on to say that the coaches involved exploited the trust of the players they coached and recruited. Well, Adidas uh, Global Sports Marketing Director Jim Gatto and three other defendants are also accused of bribing three recruits with the intention of pushing them to particular schools that are sponsored by Adidas. In one case, Gatto was accused of funneling $100,000 to a family of a recruit in order to persuade that player to attend an unnamed school in Kentucky. The University of Louisville signed a $160 million sponsorship deal with Adidas in June, although the school was not named in the court documents. Brian Bowen is a five-star recruit whose family was bribed, according to multiple reports. Bowen is currently a freshman at Louisville after choosing the Cardinals over other basketball powerhouses like Michigan State, Arizona, Oregon, and UCLA. The 19-year-old has not been charged. Auburn assistant coach Chuck Person, a former NBA star who won Rookie of the Year in 87, is accused of taking bribes from a cooperating Uh, Witness to in exchange, rather, for steering a player to agent Rashawn Michael, a former NBA official and custom clothier. In total, person is accused of accepting a total of ninety one thousand five hundred dollars in the case. The complaint says he's also accused of passing along eighteen thousand five hundred to the families of two recruits and Oklahoma State assistant coach Lamont Evans, Arizona assistant coach, Emmanuel Richardson and U.S. assistant. USC assistant Tony Bland were charged with solicitation of bribery as well. Well, the picture of college basketball painted by the charges is not a pretty one. Coaches at some of the nation's top programs taking cash bribes, managers and advisors circling blue chip prospects like Coyotes and employees of a global sportswear company funneling cash to families. Of high school recruits, Kuhn said, for the 10 charged men, the madness of college basketball went well beyond the big dance in March. He went on to say, month after month, the defendants allegedly exploited the hoop dreams of student athletes around the country, treating them as little more than opportunities to enrich themselves through bribery and fraud schemes. The um, official from Adidas Uh, uh, has been charged, and Adidas has indicated that they will cooperate with that ongoing investigation. Well, a recent article in the Washington Post detailed five nutrition facts we used to believe. We used to believe uh, it ends by saying something that you rarely read but is entirely accurate. In fact, they write, we don't have a lot of answers about nutrition, which is considered a relatively new science, end quote. But I thought we knew lots. I thought we knew everything. Well, but to listen to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, the Food and Drug Administration, and popular food activists, you would think the only issue is that Americans just aren't listening. Well, the real problems don't start with consumers. They start with scientific and economic shortcuts. The consequences of bad policies are dire. Poor nutrition is linked to chronic diseases like diabetes, Cancer, heart disease. Unfortunately, one out of every two adults suffer from one or more preventative chronic disease. That means either you or me, Clark. But the federal officials who are charged with uh, making nutritional policies continue to make poorly informed decisions. In 2009, for example, the USDA instituted a program that excluded white potatoes from the Special Supplemental Program for Women, Infants, and Children, presumably to address obesity. They did this despite the fact that many Americans have shortfalls in potassium, and potatoes are a great source of that nutrient. Five years later, they finally asked the Institute of Medicine whether it was a good move. Predictably, one of the Institute's findings was that intakes of potassium among low-income women fall short of current nutritional intake recommendations, The program may have slightly affected obesity in children, although it's not clear that it has anything to do with potatoes. The bottom line is we apparently don't know as much as we think we know or thought we knew or we were being told we knew. So science might need to play a role in all of this. Well, today is the 26th of September. That will be followed by the 27th, the 28th. You get the idea. Well, October 1st, that's when higher fines and jail uh, will be prescribed for distracted driving. The rules will be changing, so pay attention. Starting October first, which is what Sunday, uh, drivers in Oregon can be pulled over for not only texting and talking on their cell phones, but also for navigating using social media. Okay, I'm not sure what that means. Now, Nav- I mean, can you use your navigation system to get you where you need to go? Not altogether clear on that, but that's the language apparently. Um, any other hand-on cell phone and electronic use is also prohibited or will be October 1st in the state of Oregon. Repeat offenders will face uh, steeper fines and as much as a year in jail. I don't know about you, but I don't want to spend a year in jail for checking my email. Officials are hoping the changes that stem from the passage of House Bill 2597 during the last legislative session this year will help officers nab reckless drivers, curb dangerous distracted driving behaviors, and so on. Uh, Wording on the previous cell phone driving law made texting and talking on the phone the only primary distracted driver. Uh, driving offenses, meaning if an officer spotted someone behind the wheel reading a Kindle or scrolling through Facebook, really, do people do that while they're driving? Uh, They couldn't pull them over solely for that. Well, the new uh, law makes it illegal to drive in Oregon while holding or even using any electronic device, including cell phones, tablets, GPS, and laptops. So keep that in mind. Um, If you want to use your GPS, my guess is you're going to have to Program it while you're in the parking lot, set it up, and then don't touch it again, don't look at it, just listen to what it's telling you, because to do otherwise uh, could land you with a steep fine or even jail time. Hands-free and built-in devices are allowed under the law, so if your hands are not on it, I suppose it's still uh, still usable. My car, I have a Soul, it, it happens to have that built-in, but I can't fiddle with it while I'm driving. It has to be programmed before I hit the road, or else I, too, would be uh, subject to The law. It's the Oregon Distracted Driving Law. Um, Other exemptions include those making medical emergency calls, that makes sense, truck and bus drivers following federal rules, two-way radio use by school drivers and utility drivers during the uh, scope of their employment, police, fire, ambulance, and emergency vehicle operators during the scope of their employment, and ham radio operators. Those convicted of a first-time distracted driving offense not contributing to a crash faces presumptive fine of $260. You do a lot with two hundred and sixty dollars. I really don't want to just give it over to uh, the uh, whoever gets it. I'm not even sure who gets it. Uh, Department of Transportation, maybe anyway, two hundred and sixty dollars and with a minimum fine of one thousand dollars. Wow. That is actually or maximum fine. I should say starting January 1st, uh, the court may suspend the fine for first time offenders if the driver completes an approved distracted driving avoidance course. Within four months. So those courses, I'm not sure how effective they are, but it is an option. Uh, Although the fine would be suspended, the violation would still remain on the offender's driving record. So I'm not sure what that would do for your insurance. um, But there you have it. By the way, a second offense, I'm sure none of you would be guilty of a second offense if you inadvertently happened to pick up your phone and you were pulled over, it would be, I'm certain, inadvertent. It would never happen again. But for those who would be involved in a second offense or one involving a crash, that carries a presumptive fine of $435 and a maximum fine of $2,500. Again, you could probably think of better things to do with your... um With your $2,500. Committing a third distracted driving offense in a 10-year span is considered a misdemeanor. The minimum fine, $2,000. Repeat offenders could face $6,250 fine and up to a year in jail. So you don't want to get caught doing that at all, but certainly not um, multiple times. So that uh, kicks in on Sunday, October the 1st. Please make a note of it. Coming up, we're going to talk with Romina Baccia. She's a leading fiscal and economic expert. Tax reform. That's what we're going to talk about, because tomorrow the Republicans are going to unveil to some of their colleagues the major elements of their tax reform, which the speaker says is most important anyway. That and more when we return.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. <laughs> Hey, welcome back. You're listening
2: to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, House Speaker Paul Ryan told a news conference today that Republican leaders in the House, the Senate and the White House, they've all come together on a concrete framework for historic tax reform. That's a quote. The rollout begins tomorrow when Republican leaders uh, brief their caucus about the plan. The speaker also admitted to frustration with the Senate, which has been unable to muster 50 Republican votes to pass a health care bill. But he indicated that a tax reform bill is even more important than that. Well, tax reform, easier said than done. With control of the executive and legislative branches, the GOP is well positioned to pass meaningful tax reform, but that doesn't make the end result any easier. And are they misdiagnosing the problem? Well, joining us to talk about that is Romina Baccia. She's a leading fiscal and economic expert at the Heritage Foundation. She focuses on government spending and national debt. Thank you so much for joining us.
4: Thank you for having me.
2: Now, there were some who argued that uh, passing some co- sort of health care reform was essential to tax reform. Others are saying it's probably better that we start with tax reform and then revisit uh, health reform. Are the two of them tethered together in any meaningful way, and does the failure to pass reform of Obamacare mean much uh, to the effort that's going to follow, and that's toward tax reform?
4: At the beginning, when there was a big push to repeal all of the Affordable Care Act taxes, yes, that would have made the tax reform much easier because it would have reduced the revenue baseline by about a trillion dollars. Um, and plus, if the full health care law would have been repealed, you would have also been looking at about two trillion dollars. In, in spending reductions, which would have allowed for a greater tax cut due to spending relief. Now that uh, those health efforts have so far failed, um, Congress is in a bit of a tougher spot. But beyond that, um, the issues are not related.
2: Are they looking at permanent tax reform or are they going to use the reconciliation process? And we're looking at a brief window of tax reform.
4: They seem to be looking at a combination of both, some changes would be permanent. Others uh, would expire after a certain number of years. There's been some leaks that uh, potentially full expensing, which is a policy that would allow businesses to deduct the full value of any investment they make in the year in which it is made, that that policy might be set to expire after five years. Other policies, including the corporate rate reduction down to potentially 20%, um, those would be more permanent policies, which would be important because those are the kind of policies where businesses are looking for certainty, and when they're deciding whether to invest in the United States or relocate their headquarters here, um, they don't want a temporary tax change because that doesn't give them enough certainty to make those big investments.
2: Republicans campaign on a promise of pro-growth tax reform. The Congressional Budget Office is projecting that tax revenue is going to grow above historical norms uh, for the foreseeable future. It seems like this is the perfect time to provide some uh, tax relief. What are the challenges that the P- Republicans within their own party, and certainly uh, with uh, Democrats as well, uh, in coming up with tax reform that Americans can live with and is uh, is uh, doesn't add to the deficit?
4: That, that the key challenge is uh, is that one the deficit neutral challenge. There's two ways of accomplishing deficit neutrality. That's either finding other tax revenue to replace any revenues lost from say uh, rate reductions uh, that are being proposed now, or cutting spending. Um, and that, that those are the more difficult discussions. There's broad agreement on the need to lower. Um, the business tax rates on, uh, on on the desire to want to provide some middle class tax relief potentially with a, a doubled standard deduction, meaning expanding the zero tax bracket to more income. Uh, there's less agreement on um, where to find additional revenues or what to cut when it comes to spending. Some of the policy provisions being thrown around include eliminating the state and local tax deduction, which basically makes taxpayers in low tax, low debt states uh, subsidize taxpayers in high tax, high debt states like California, for example.
2: So what's going to be the most difficult uh, aspect of tax reform? Uh, Is it going to be the the spending Mm. that needs to be addressed alongside with that? Or what do you see as the, the greater challenges?
4: I have not seen much concrete discussion on Mm -hmm. uh, reducing spending as part of tax reform. Right now, all of the discussion is which loopholes to close, uh, which rates to lower and by how much. And most of the agreement is on lowering rates, not so much on which loopholes to close, because that's where the devil, of course, is in the details and the special interests are coming um, out uh, to lobby Washington to preserve their Mm -hmm. special interest deductions and tax credits. And so I think ultimately the biggest challenge will be to put together a package that can uh, meet that deficit-neutral rule in the Senate, um, whereas when there's really no agreement on how to accomplish that, the great, the big threat is that this could lead to potentially a bipartisan effort that will be a watered-down version of real tax reform, and that could potentially be um, combined with new spending, say on infrastructure, for example, um, that could make our deficit much worse in the long run and really miss this, once in a generation opportunity for fundamental and comprehensive tax reform.
2: Yeah. Now, some advisors in the Trump administration uh, reportedly are entertaining a carbon tax, a value added tax. The House Ways and Means Committee is still considering a border adjustment tax. Um, are there is there pushback? Um, in on the GOP side uh, that may make uh, this kind of um, reform more difficult or more challenging? Or do you see these as things that have been considered but not likely to uh, be a, a serious part of overall tax reform?
4: So w- one big one that was uh, very much considered that it was included in the bill that was proposed by Speaker of the House Uh, Paul Ryan and Kevin Brady, uh, who's the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, was the uh, border adjustment tax. That was something that the president uh, also showed some support for and there was some grassroots support as well, but I think to some degree it was because that tax was misunderstood and there was a big campaign to present it as something that it was not. And that has since been abandoned because there was a lot of conservative opposition. When it comes to carbon taxes, generally, um conservatives are opposed to those. They fall particularly heavily on lower-income Americans and are generally bad policy that harms our economy. Uh, a value-added tax uh, should only be considered if it were to replace the income tax. Otherwise, you're looking at uh, creating a European-style tax and spend system. Value-added taxes are very effective at bringing in revenue for the government, but they also fuel The growth in government, just look at Germany, which has now a 19% value-added tax. Anything you buy, Hmm. add 19% on top.
2: Wow. Now, others have proposed raising uh, revenue by eliminating the wage deduction for uh, employers. Um, Does that have much traction, as far as you can tell?
4: The wage deduction for employers... Um, I, that's not something that uh, seems to have as much traction. Mm-hmm. I think that could really backfire because it would incentivize them, um, businesses to uh, replace workers with more machinery, um, robots instead of people, because if they can write off uh, the investment in, in, in machines but not when they spend uh, have to uh, p- pay wages, then that will create a, a distortion in the economy. Businesses shouldn't decide whether to hire people or um, use more machines based for tax reasons they should do so for other business reasons. So we don't want to distort markets in that way. I hope that one is dead on arrival.
2: Hmm. Well, as I mentioned, the rollout, according to Speaker Ryan, begins tomorrow when Republican leaders uh, brief their caucus about the plan Uh, in the wake of the uh, failure to address Obamacare. I think a lot of people are skeptical as to whether or not it's even possible uh, for Republicans to agree on a plan are you optimistic moving forward that we will in fact see not just tax reform but debt neutral tax reform
4: I am optimistic deficit that we'll some type of tax reform um, I'm I'm worried that it won't be uh, deficit neutral but you know it doesn't mean that we won't get another crack at it I think one big bill That does all of the important parts that tax reform should accomplish now, which means lowering the corporate tax rate, allowing small businesses to also pay or lower tax rates so that we don't incentivize corporations over other business formations, uh, making sure that um, we are competitive in the global marketplace and providing some tax relief for middle-income families. I think it's a winning proposition how to pay for those tax changes is, of course, where things get more difficult. Mm -hmm. But I continue to advocate for uh, a a spending break or a debt break similar to the Swiss-style debt break. It allows lawmakers to agree broadly to the goals of fiscal controls and putting the budget on a path to balance. And then the details get worked out as those controls begin to bind, which will then allow for Spending reforms at another time. Um, we, 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 it's simply uh, not feasible to lower tax revenue significantly now. I think we'll get some economic growth to make up for that, but spending is growing much, much faster than the economy, and therefore we need to reduce spending and especially reform the entitlements if we want tax relief um, to be a more permanent feature rather than short-lived.
2: Romina Bacha thank you so much for talking with us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Again, Romina Baccia is a leading fiscal and economic expert. Uh, she focuses on government spending and the national debt. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show.
1: We'll take a quick break, and we'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. is aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ.
2: We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Senator George McGovern, a Democrat from South Dakota, said this. The highest patriotism is not a blind acceptance of official policy, but a love of one's country deep enough to call her to a higher plane. We're seeing some of that being played out now, interpreting, reinterpreting, misinterpreting some signals that are being sent by professional athletes. Uh, but uh, the uh, in the context of filmmakers Ken Burns and Lynn Novick's uh, documentary, A Vital Public Service. Uh, is uh, being uh, carried out. The uh, documentary which I've been watching uh, is The Vietnam War for PBS. Now given the divisions that war caused in America, it's a pretty fair chronicling of the way things were half a century ago. Some of you were not around at that time. I was a small child at the time, but it's been fascinating. To see the much longer history of the war than I expected and to have a better understanding of the players and their thinking behind some of the decisions that were made. The film brought back a lot of uh, mostly bad memories to people of uh, Cal Thomas's generation and he writes about that in the Patriot Post. He writes that chief among them was the unfairness of those drafted to fight. The film notes a disproportionate number of African Americans were taken from inner cities. I saw that in my company at Fort Gordon, Georgia, he writes, where the few white men besides me were West Virginians. I had recently flunked out of my freshman year at American University and was listed as IA, prime draft material. Those who remained in college or those who suddenly discovered an interest in the Almighty and enrolled in Divinity School remained deferred. A woman I knew at the draft board called to say, uh, my number was about to come up, and urged me to take uh, to make arrangements. I was working as a copy boy at NBC News in Washington at the time, and I asked the Pentagon correspondent if he knew someone I could speak to about a good assignment. He did, and I wound up fighting communists with uh, Armed Forces Radio in New York. Few others have uh, had such connections, which uh, was also unfair to them. I was from a conservative family that was supposed to hate communists, but the Vietnam War, even in the mid '60s, increasingly appeared to be more like Custer's last stand, not World War II. Again, quoting Cal Thomas. The film notes the failure of generals and politicians at all levels. John F. Kennedy was concerned that pulling advisors from Vietnam might hurt his reelection chances in 1964. After his assassination, Lyndon Johnson had the same concern and listened to generals trained in World War II tactics, which were wrong for Vietnam. When Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara wrote a private memo to LBJ in 1967, which was uh, uh, quite uh, the general public, uh, of course, did not know it at the time, only later with his memoirs expressing his belief that the war could uh, could not be won. Johnson shuffled him off to the World Bank. It would be two decades before McNamara spoke publicly about his doubts and confessed his misjudgments too late for the nearly 60,000 noble and faithful patriots who were killed fighting. What they were uh, told was a war to stop the spread of communism. Senator Eugene McCarthy, who challenged Johnson for the 1968 Democratic presidential nomination and eventually forced him from the race, gave a speech in Chicago on the 2nd of December in 1967 that sounded like surrender to America, love it or leave it supporters of the war. But in hindsight, it rang true. A war which is not defensible, even in military terms, which runs contrary to the advice of our greatest generals, Eisenhower, Richway, Bradley, MacArthur, all of whom admonished us against becoming involved in a land war in Asia. Events have proved them right, as estimate, uh, um, after estimate, as of the, as to the time of success and the military commitment necessary to, uh, uh, to success has uh, had to be revised, always upward, more troops, more expensive bombing, a widening and intensification of the war extension and um, uh, in uh, further extension uh, have been the rule and projection after projection of success have been proved wrong end quote well again the bravery of our military was never in doubt but misjudgments or um, egomaniacal politicians are the real lessons of vietnam current and future generations should watch this documentary and learn from the lessons of vietnam which as evidenced by more recent wars we apparently have not yet fully internalized it is a fascinating uh, documentary I was always uh, I was initially concerned about the direction it might take whether or not it was a fair assessment a, a fair coverage of all the parties involved I think for the most part uh, it is that I think the uh, the last in the installment is either uh, coming up uh, tonight or tomorrow night but it's nearing its end but I believe you can still Uh, Watch it from its beginning. Uh, There are nine parts that have been spread over the last couple of weeks, but it's the Vietnam War uh, for PBS. Uh, Again, Ken Burns and Lynn Novick have performed uh, something of a public service in making their documentary. Uh, It has been difficult, I would imagine, for those who participated in that war, uh, having done what their nation uh, called upon them to do, returning home. Uh, without getting the kind of appreciation for their willingness to serve the interests of the nation because the war had been conducted so poorly. And uh, there's a, a great deal of, uh, of sorrow over how many of the veterans were treated. Uh, but this, uh, this documentary may help uh, all of us better understand the issues at that time and perhaps help us understand our own time just a bit better as well. Well taking a look at uh, the remainder of this week on the Georgine Rice show on Wednesday we're going to talk with Karen Wright Marsh. She's the author of Vintage Saints and Sinners. That's rather sinners. Vintage Saint Saints and Sinners 25 Christians who transformed my faith. I'm looking forward to reviewing some of them. Some who uh, some names you'll uh, recognize others not so much but uh, it's a good education to look back at those whose lives have the capacity to influence others in significant ways, sometimes in ways that uh, encourages someone not to follow their example. And then on Thursday, we'll talk with Jonathan McKee, the author of The Teen's Guide to Social Media and Mobile Devices, 21 Tips to Wise Posting and in An Insecure World. Much of the trouble is brought on by our uh our, um, Carelessness in posting on the internet, sometimes not, but uh, this is a guide for teenagers that I think those of us who are a bit older, whose teenage years are far behind them, might also uh, gain some insight into as well. Of course, there's social media on your um, many and varied devices, also tips on wise posting in a world that is increasingly insecure. Then on Friday, of course, we'll lighten things up. We're continuing to uh, Uh, Keep one eye poised on the news. And as breaking news occurs, we'll certainly break into the program and uh, share that even on a Friday afternoon. I want to encourage you to continue praying for the uh, folks displaced by natural disaster in Houston, in the Virgin Islands, in Florida, in uh, Puerto Rico, uh, in the Caribbean. Uh, Puerto Rico, in particular, as we mentioned earlier in the program, is really struggling at this time. Resources are very slowly making their way to the area. But when you have lost the entire grid, I mean, we sit from a vantage point at some distance and, you know, wag our fingers at what ought to be done immediately. It's a much bigger job than one might imagine, transporting goods to that island where there's no infrastructure uh, in a government that is uh, is is. Way underwater in terms of its uh, economic stability. So there's a lot going on there. But the rank and file individual who's just trying to take care of their family, uh, trying to feed them, trying to make sure they have sufficient shelter, that they have clean potable drinking water. These are basic concerns that every one of us would have. Uh, Their proximity to the continental United States makes uh, the challenge a bit more difficult. We watched in Houston, for example, and in Florida. It was much easier for people to hop in a truck and make their way to bring supplies. A ship is another matter, having access to that kind of transportation. And yet, um, my understanding is there are efforts, as we discussed earlier, that are increasing there. They have not been forgotten, but their situation is much, much more challenging than in other areas. So please continue to pray for them and give generously to organizations that are uh, ministering to them on the ground. I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blint for engineering a portion of and producing all of today's program, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night.
1: Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast.